and look at it, God. Make it make it fresh and make it something new. Lord, we know your word is living and active. You promised that it would be. You said that that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. can cut real deep. So, Lord, we pray this morning that in ways that we don't even know we need, that your word would, would cut deep and change us and make us new again. We thank you for this chance uh, to look at the scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is my favorite time of year, by the way. I I love I love the fall. I, I love spring because that's when baseball season starts and and things start to warm up again and so on. But I think fall really is my my favorite time of year. It uh, obviously the World Series happens in October, and so as a baseball fan, I love that. Um, and uh, and so cooler weather is nice based upon the heat and humidity of the summer. Uh, maybe a little drier weather sometimes in the fall would, would be nice. Uh, the leaves change, of course, it's so pretty and, and beautiful, and and the crops are harvested, the smell of tobacco barns, I mean, all this stuff that happens around here in the fall. And, and certainly, you know, the fall is a time for U.K. football fans to look forward to basketball season. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a great time of year. And so uh, <clears throat> that was a cheap shot, but it was good. And so... <laughs> I was pulling up yesterday. I'd taken a couple of my kids to Louisville to go visit my parents overnight, and we were coming back in, and and they started to wonder. I wonder if the field behind the house has been cut, and and there's corn back there this year, and they're wondering if it's been harvested yet because it it looks pretty close to being ready. You know, it's about time, and and there's an anticipation, you know, of the crops being harvested. Not imagine there's there's maybe some not so subtle competition between farmers to who gets their crop in first and all that stuff. You know, I. I I would imagine there's some of that, and harvest time, it's just, it's a special time of year. There's a lot of work that goes into it, and, and I know many of our farmers uh, have been working overtime, to say the least, and, and yet it's a special time of year. It's time really to kind of celebrate. Here, here's finally the time where we get to reap the benefit of all that we've been working for, all that we planted, and, and all of that. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, is a, is a harvest celebration. We're leading up to, in our sermon series right now, we're leading up to November 6th, and, and for those of you that, that have been with us every week, I'll be redundant. For those that, that haven't, let me introduce you to what's going on. Uh, November 6th, we're going to celebrate the 170th anniversary of our church. Our church was founded in 1846, a long time ago, and we're going to commemorate that. You know, why 170 years? And well, my answer is why not? We, you know, why not? We like to celebrate and eat together, and so that's what we're going to do. And so be a good opportunity for you to invite some folks to church that day, maybe that have been a part of the church in the past sort of as a homecoming, if you will, but also a good chance for you to say, hey, we, we've got a time, we're just celebrating our church's birthday. Would you would you be interested in coming with me that day? And maybe you've been looking for the perfect opportunity to invite an unchurched person to come with you, and, and that'd be a good chance. We'll have a meal that day, and we'll have a special celebration. But we're leading up to that with looking at all the celebrations in the Old Testament that God instituted for the Israelites to pause and to remember and to celebrate what God had done and who he was and what, as we'll see, what he was going to do. And so today we'll see another of the annual festival celebrations that God said the Israelites were to participate in. We saw a few weeks ago the weekly celebration of the past, or the uh, Sabbath rather. We saw two weeks ago the monthly celebration of the new moon. We saw last week the annual celebration of Passover. And then this, this week we'll look at another annual celebration. Now, let me just kind of introduce this with, with an overall biblical principle. Uh, you, you've
outline there. This, some of the stuff that I'll say, won't, this won't be on the outline, but if you'd like to follow along, you, you can. You'll see some stuff on the screen to help you fill in the blanks. But there's an overall principle in the Bible that is obvious and plain, and we don't necessarily like it, but it's, it's there, and that is that your money and your stuff is God's business. And it's not my business, but it's God's business. And so on behalf of God this morning, I'm going to get in your business, okay? That's just the way it's going to be. Um, I, I've, there's, a, there's a friend of mine here, he, he likes to talk about it. He said, you know, you stopped preaching at one point and you started meddling. And I said, well, okay, all right, I'm sorry, you know. Uh, and good thing you brought your steel-toe boots, you know, because maybe your toes get stepped on just a little bit. But here's the deal. God's principle is that, his, that, that your stuff, your money, what you have, what you do, and so on, is his business. It, he makes no bones about it. In fact, he makes no apologies about it. He just says this is the way it is. Is. And so it should come as no surprise that God makes commands and statements, and He sets even some laws. We'll see today uh, for the Old Testament, or the, for the uh, ancient Israelites in the Old Testament, some festivals that they were to do, some commands that they were to give an offering to the Lord out of what they had received from Him. They were to celebrate and to recognize Him as their Creator as their king, as their provider. But what we'll see this morning, that the offering that he required on this annual basis wasn't just a token. Hey, kind of show up and throw God a little bit and say, hey, we're good, aren't we? You know, and hey, I gave you a little money and whatever. What he's going to do is is prove something to us and really about us with the kind of offering that he required of the Israelites. This This offering really points to something that was a problem for them and can be a problem for us, just a problem for humans in general. He highlights and he reveals, God does, and works against this major problem of self-confidence. The problem that the ancient Israelites faced, the problem that we face today that God wants to combat, I really believe, and we'll see in, in Leviticus chapter 23 how he does it, is the problem of self-confidence. Now, for them, if you, if you want to make a note of this, write down the scripture of Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you don't know how to spell Deuteronomy, just abbreviate it, DT period, Deuteronomy chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 10, we see the Israelites' propensity for self-confidence, and God talks about it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities, now catch this, that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill, wells dug that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. What's he talking about? He's talking about their propensity for self-confidence that forgets the Lord. He says, when you go to this land, you're not there yet, but when you get there, this promised land I'm giving you, and you live in these cities you didn't build, and you enjoy these homes that you didn't furnish, and you, you harvest these crops that you didn't plant, be careful not to forget the Lord. Don't think you did all this stuff. You see God's point. And so he's highlighting... In Leviticus, as we'll see, chapter 23, and certainly throughout the Old Testament law, the problem of self-confidence. Now, throughout the Bible, we see the idea that money and stuff can produce in us a self-confidence that reveals what's going on in our heart. Jesus talked about loving money and so on, and it's a sure path to destruction and disappointment. And certainly from our experience, we know that self-confidence can be an issue. Now, you know, We have the tendency to believe... And to operate as if what we earn 
What we have is ours exclusively. Uh, to do with what we want, irrespective of anyone else's wishes. It's my stuff, I'll do with it what I want. We like the feeling of, of knowing that we've made it on our own. Uh, we, we certainly, we know there's something that's fulfilling about being able to support yourself. Uh, to feel good about what you've accomplished, to set a goal and to, to reach it and so on. But, but as much as our self-confidence can help us reach new heights and solve new problems and earn a living and do well in school and so on, it can also be a huge obstacle in our lives because it easily leads to other self-focused kind of mindsets like self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-assurance and self-importance. Now, most people are going to tell you those things are all good. You ought to be self-reliant and self-assured and self-confident. But when you look at Scripture... The essence of walking with God is not self-reliance and self-confidence and self-assurance. It's losing yourself. That's the essence of walking with God. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, what does he say? You must what? Deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. What's he talking about? Self-confidence? No, he's talking about losing yourself. And so this is a problem that God addresses throughout Scripture. Our problem of self-confidence can lead to us, instead of worshiping the Lord, following ourselves. And so it's, it's our self-confidence that God wants to root in Him, not in us. Not in our ability, not in our intelligence, not in our leadership skills, not in our money, not in our stuff. And so God is going to address, in Leviticus 23, the solution. His solution to our big problem of self-confidence and believing that we have done all of these things, and he's going to address it with the ancient Israelites, his solution is very simple, and it's giving. You knew it was coming. The solution to self-confidence, God's solution, is giving. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 23. Check out verse 9 to start, and we'll see what God is talking about. The Lord spoke to Moses. Here's what he said. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land I am giving you and reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a year-old male lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering is to be four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a fire offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. And its drink offering will be one quart of wine. You must not eat bread, roasted grain, or any new grain until this very day, and you have brought your offering before the Lord. This is to be a permanent statute throughout your generations wherever you live. This festival is highlighted as a way that the Israelites are to give back to the Lord, reminding them that self-confidence is an illusion and that they truly are dependent on the Lord. It was called the festival, it came to be known as the festival of first fruits. The first fruits, the first produce, if you will, of their crop. It was in the springtime actually. It's a little bit different from our fall harvest, but harvest time nonetheless. The barley harvest is what they were talking about. And it involved presenting the first ripe sheaf, a little bundle of barley to the Lord. They would wave it before the Lord, symbolizing that everything in the harvest was from and belonged to and was dedicated to the Lord. God commanded it because they were to remember and commemorate their dependence on Him. 
It kept them from unhealthy self-confidence. He said, when you enter the land, remember in Deuteronomy 6, when you enter the land and you do this and so on, you remember who's responsible for it. And so it reminded them to trust God for what they needed to meet their needs. Now this relates to teaching throughout the Bible. Uh, giving to God is something that's seen throughout the Bible. And it's always there. God has always commanded that we give back to Him. God's giving, His providing for us, His sacrifice for us, uh, is, is highlighted mostly really in, in John chapter 3 verse 16. It says that God loved the world in this way, that He what gave His one and only Son. And whoever will believe in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting, eternal life. And so the idea of giving is throughout Scripture. Uh, we, we talks about that, that we love because God first loved us. He gave us His love first, and so we return it. Jesus talked about giving in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about the power of money and stuff and unhealthy self-confidence. Paul wrote about it to the Corinthians. The early church gave and gave and gave. If you read the book of Acts, they gave because God had given them so much. The biblical pattern... For our response has always been very simple, and that is to give to God off the top. Our problem is self-confidence. We know that from the Scripture. We know that from experience that we tend to trust ourselves more than we trust God. And specifically with our money and stuff, it's revealed. God's solution is to give, and His call for us to respond is to give off the top from the first fruits. Why? Why did he ask them to give from the very first? Well, it's just a biblical pattern. It's also representative that we give our best to the Lord, not some leftovers. And it symbolizes what Jesus is for us. We'll get to that in just a little bit. And so the principle is to give to God before anything else. In Leviticus 23, they were to give to God before they were to enjoy it. Uh, We're to do the same before we waste it. And that's something. You ever waste money? You ever waste your stuff? You ever get to the end of the month and you got a little more month left over and not enough money? A little more month than you have money? Before we lose it. Before it takes hold of us. Before anything else happens. Before our personal benefit and use. Before it burns a hole in our pocket. Before we forget where it came from. We are to give to God off the top. Now the pattern of the festival of the first fruits was that they were to give to God out of three main attitudes. And that's what I want to cover this morning. The first attitude to give out of is an attitude of appreciation. God is the creator and it all belongs to him. Uh, It says, when you enter the land, I am giving you and reap its harvest. Does it say that... When you get there and you've worked so hard and, and, and you, you reap your harvest, you, 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 you do and you, you finally get what you've worked for. And it just says when you reap its harvest, the subtle, the subtle truth there is you didn't do much for it. An appreciation that you know what? Crops grow because of him. When I wrote my dissertation last year, I read a lot and had to write a lot about ministry in a small church. And not only just a small church, but a small rural church. Now, for some of you, Elm Grove is a very highly densely populated area. Okay, I get that. But it ain't for me, okay? I, I just, it's just not. I moved from Louisville to Atlanta to Elm Grove, all right? <laughs> a little less density here. Now, that's good. I like it. But there's something different about ministry and about churches in sort of a small town and then even in the suburbs, if you will, of that small town. You know, one of the things that was interesting that I read about, and I think it's true, that that 
whatever you want to call it, whether you call it rural folks, country folks, farming folks, there is something about those kinds of people that do that kind of work and live on that kind of land that comes with an inherent belief that I'm not totally in control here. Now, every spring they plant the crop behind our house. And then I don't see them again until they spray it a little bit. Then I don't see them again until they come by with the combine. You know what they're not doing out there every single day? Grow. 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 They're not doing any of that stuff. They're not commanding the crops to grow. You know why? Because it doesn't do any good. Because you know who makes the crops grow? You know who makes the seeds germinate? You know who provides the sun and the wind and the rain and all the stuff to make it grow? It ain't them, is it? You know what they know? They know that's true. Now they may not say, well, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God who lived and died for me and was resurrected, and that's why I don't go out and command the crops to grow, because I'm a believer in Jesus. No, but they know there's something beyond them making it happen. There's something about the harvest that we recognize, you know what? I didn't do this. I put it in the ground. I might gave it a little water, spray to keep some weeds away from it. Maybe I tilled up the ground and, you know, whatever, but... I didn't make it happen. I can't even explain how it happens. There's something about this harvest festival that caused them to appreciate what God had done. You realize that even your ability to think and to work, the scripture says, comes from the Lord. You may not be a farmer. You may be a computer programmer, a teacher. You may be somebody who works on an assembly line somewhere. But you know what? Your ability to get up every morning to think about how to do your job and to physically go and do it, that doesn't come from you. You didn't create those things in yourself. Well, I went to school. Now, hold on just a second. Good job. You went to school. Who gave you your brain? Who gave you the discipline to sit there the whole time while that teacher droned on and on and on? Without him, none of this, the Israelites were to remember, would have been possible. And so they paused to appreciate it. To give as appreciation, to say, God, thank you so much for what you have done. Lord, we look over this field that we're about to harvest, and we just stop to say thanks. How often do we do the same? And I mean that sincerely, not rhetorically. How often do we stop in that job that you hate? How often do you stop to say, Lord... I don't like what I'm doing, but thank you for the ability to do it. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to earn a living in some way. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to think and to even consider the fact that this job came from you. In that class, young people, that you dread, how often do you stop and thank God for the mind and the body just to be there? Our relationship with our stuff and with our money is a window to our hearts. And if we don't stop occasionally to appreciate what God has done, we'll start to believe self-confidently that we did it. We're to give back to God. The Israelites were to give back to God as a sign of appreciation for what God had done to bring the harvest, what he provided. Secondly, they gave out of an attitude of dedication. Appreciation, then dedication. Dedication, he is the king. This was one of the festivals at which all of the males in Israel were to appear, representing all the households. This was to be for everybody. This was not just for the super spiritual, not just for the really kind of weird spiritual people who just go all out. You know what I'm saying? This was for the people as a whole. 
Everybody was to be represented as a sign of dedication of the whole nation and every household to the Lord. And God said, you're to appear before me and everybody will participate in this giving. This symbolism will be of dedication. Giving was a sign they would show their love and their respect and their desire to honor and obey the Lord. Giving off the top was a sign that they believed the entire crop belonged to the Lord, not not just the leftovers. The first and the best belonged to God. And along with the grain offering that they gave, they also had a burnt offering. And anytime you see a burnt offering in, in the scripture, it's a sign of complete dedication. They were to let the whole thing burn up as a sign that their whole lives were dedicated to the Lord. Now, the truth be told, if you're like me, we practice sort of a keep the door shut when they come over kind of Christianity. Like, don't open the door to that room. You know what I'm talking about? That closet, that room downstairs, wherever it is. Keep the door shut to that room when they come over because I don't want anybody to see that that's where we put all the stuff. Don't open that closet door because somebody's going to die. You know, that's, that's the way it is. They're going to get hit with all this stuff. Don't open that door because that's embarrassing. That's often the kind of Christianity we practice. And often the door we keep shut most to the Lord is the door of our finances. The door of our stuff. Well, hold on a second now. You're, you're meddling a little bit now. We get offended sometimes when the preacher talks about it. But I want you to hear from Jesus this morning. If you got your scripture handy and want to turn there, look at Matthew chapter 6. Keep your place in Leviticus. Look at Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> he says it this way, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 19 of chapter 6 in Matthew. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And look at verse 24. No one can be a slave of two masters, since he will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. Some versions will say you cannot serve both God and money. What's he saying? <clears throat> He's saying that you can't be a servant both to God and to your money. You can't have <clears throat> the door of your finances and your stuff and your work and all that you produce and your self-confidence, that door closed to God and still claim to follow God. Can't do it. Can't serve both. You're going to either love one and hate the other, serve one, despise the other. That's the way. It's either or. And the best way, if you recognize that God is speaking to you this morning about your stuff and your money and the need to show dedication to God with it, the best way to kill the master of money and stuff is to give obediently and sacrificially to the Lord. That's it. Now, I don't mean give obediently and sacrificially to me. I'm not God, and I'm not even talking about just giving to the church. I'm talking about giving to the Lord and honoring Him, because it sets a new priority. If you, at the beginning of every month, if you say, you know what, God's going to get off the top what God needs to get, it sets a new priority. Guess who no longer is in control of your money and your stuff? Your money and your stuff's not, and you're not. God is. It declares a new allegiance, a new dedication. They were to give of the first fruits, the very first as a sign of dedication. Lord, we don't even yet have the whole crop, but we are giving to you off the top. Thirdly, they were to give with an, an attitude of anticipation. 
an attitude of anticipation, knowing that He is faithful. Go back to verse 10 of Leviticus 23. The Lord, it says in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses, then in verse 10, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land I am giving you, where are they not at that point when they receive these verses? Where are they not? They're not in the land, right? See, he says, when you enter the land. So where does that put them? Not in the land, okay? They're not yet there and reap its harvest. What have they not yet reaped? The harvest of the land they're not yet in. God sets this up. Understand the, the power of, of this particular institution of this festival. God sets this up before they've even gotten there. Think through that for just a second. God says, when you get to the land and you reap the harvest, they're over here, not yet in, they're still out in the wilderness wandering around, dealing with God's judgment on their sin. They're not yet there yet. They haven't reaped the harvest of a crop in 400 and some odd years. And God says, when you get to this land over here that I'm going to give you and you reap the harvest, then here's what I want you to do. He set it up in anticipation of what he was going to do. God was telling them about what was going to happen in the future. There's going to be fields, he says, and crops and a harvest and stuff you haven't experienced in 400 and some odd years. And that's what I'm going to do for you. And when you do and when you see the first part of that crop, I want you to cut it in anticipation of what I'm going to do. The first of the crop. The rest hadn't been harvested yet. In fact, it was several months till the, till the wheat harvest would be ready. And they were praising God in anticipation of what he would do in the near and the distant future. And all they had was that first sheaf of barley. They didn't have the full yield. They didn't even have the full report. They couldn't even tell based on their computer program what kind of yield they were going to get. They had no idea. And yet as a result... They still gave to God. They were not to wait until they had it all in order to praise God or give to Him. They didn't give out of the abundance that they already had in the storehouse. They gave off the top out of anticipation, looking forward to what good and blessing from God lay ahead of them. Now, from a New Testament perspective, there are a couple of verses I want to show you this morning. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he talks about what God is able to do. And he says this in closing his prayer. He says, Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in you, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He says, To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. You realize that God is able to do far more then we can even anticipate that God can do. When they were to give out of this first fruits to God, they were giving in anticipation of the harvest. Paul lays on it even more. God is able to give more than the harvest. God is able to give more than we could even imagine or think. And then there's some great symbolism that Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our giving is not just out of obligation or obedience or because the preacher told you to, but it's in anticipation of what Jesus represents for us. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward at his coming, 
the people of Christ. You see what Paul did? He looks back to this festival of first fruits and he says, you know what that really represents? It doesn't represent the rest of the crop physically. Ultimately, what it represents is that Jesus is the first and the promise of resurrection. He's our first fruits. So the festival of first fruits wasn't just about giving to God from the crops. And our giving isn't just about giving some money to the work of God in the church. More than anything, it's a preview of what Jesus has done for all who believe in him. That he is our down payment. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And that like him, all those who believe in him will one day be harvested to eternal life. And this morning, I, I, I want to go back to the principle that giving is not something that's negotiable in Scripture. Our, our stuff, our money, is God's business. God owns it all. And He demands that we operate according to His principles. And that's what He's setting up for the Israelites. And that's what He established throughout all of Scripture. And by giving to Him, we defeat our tendencies toward an improper self-confidence. By giving, we teach ourselves to appreciate what God has done for us. By giving, we dedicate ourselves, even and especially what is most near and dear to our hearts, our stuff, our money. We dedicate ourselves to the one and only master that we are to have. And by giving, we look forward to what God will do, both physically here on earth and one day in the resurrection. Let me encourage you this morning to become a giver in three specific ways that you will not see on your outline. This is bonus material. It's going to be on a quiz, okay? But it's bonus material. Pay attention. Three specific ways. Let me encourage you. Here's how you can begin to put this into practice. You say, dude, what does all this mean? Let me help you. First, let me encourage you to become a percentage giver. A percentage giver. Some of you already do this. The, the, and I'm, I don't have time to unpack it all. But, but I have come to be convicted that the biblical norm that God expects from his people, the biblical norm and minimum is a 10% gift to the Lord out, out of our first fruits, off the top. I, I, if you want to talk about that stuff, there are different people who argue it different ways. It just seems to me that based upon the fact that Abraham gave a tenth of all he had to the priest Melchizedek before the law, that Jesus never repudiated or repudiated the, the, uh, the, the tithe, it just seems to me that the biblical norm has always been 10%. Just always, that's the way it is. So let me encourage you to become a percentage giver. And by percentage, I simply mean that you say no matter what I earn, no matter what I make, no matter what I bring in, X percent goes to the Lord off the top before anything else gets paid. And you say, holy moly, 10%, dude, are you serious? I think God's serious about it, but let me encourage you this way. If you are not in any way a giver to the Lord... Let me encourage you to start somewhere. Let me encourage you to start somewhere and begin to get toward where God says we ought to be. Start with 1%, 2%, 3%. I don't know. Start wherever you can. But let me encourage you, don't set an amount, okay? Because in a, a 10% or, or, or let's just say you set it at $100, $100 a month. Well, listen, when you're making $200 a month, $100 is 50%. That's an awful lot. But when you're making... It's a lot more than $200 a month. Sometimes 100 ain't real strong. Let me encourage you to set a percentage. Secondly, let me encourage you to be a sacrificial giver. We talk about our state missions offering. It's above and beyond. We, we don't give out of the regular giving that comes into the church. We give out of the above and beyond giving. A, a sacrificial giver sacrifices what they would spend that money on in order to use it for something that they believe God has called them to use it for. 
a sacrificial gift. I'm going to forego something over here so that I can give this toward something else. Let me encourage you to be a percentage giver, a sacrificial giver, and then thirdly, let me encourage you to be a spontaneous giver. Some of you are incredible at this. It, It blows my mind. Spontaneous givers simply see a need, listen to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit says, you know what? I want you to meet that need. And you meet the need. Spontaneous. You didn't plan for it. You just said, hey, you know what? Came across this or we're taking love off and we're doing whatever. You know what? I'll give toward that. I, I will help with that effort to meet that need. I really believe that based upon the fact that this festival required the Israelites to send people as representatives of their home, that this this isn't just about, although it includes, it's not just about giving our money. And so as you become a percentage, as a sacrificial and a and a spontaneous giver. Let me encourage you, don't just consider, well, give some money, get that guy off my back. Let me also encourage you that these folks gave some time. And they probably gave some of their talents as well. I had a pastor that put it this way, and maybe you've heard it. Give to God off the top, percentage, spontaneous, and sacrificial of your talent, your time, and your treasure. Let me encourage you. We've got great ways for you to get involved here and give of your time. You say, look, I don't even know what to do. Just see me afterward. Where can I get involved? I'd like to, I'd like to give some of my time to the Lord. I would like to serve Him. I promise you there's some folks that, that, that would love to use your time and to show you how you can get involved. You say, look, I, I don't know exactly what this kind of talent might help with the church, but I'm pretty good at this. And I, you know, this is what I do for a living. God's blessed me in this way. Let me encourage you. How can you serve the Lord with those talents? And certainly out of your treasure. How can you give to God off the top with all three of those? We're not going to collect another offering as you walk out the door. <laughs> I promise you. And my, I tell you what, my goal has nothing to do with increasing the church's bottom line. I've told you this before, and I really do mean it. I, I looked this morning, I opened my bulletin, and I looked to make sure that I was putting the songs in for being the right way in the right order. And then I looked and I thought, huh, there's $7,750 that came in last week. Okay. I honestly, I don't look at what we brought in one week until I open the bulletin the following week. I don't say that for any other reason than this has nothing to do with trying to increase the church bottom line. I want you and I want me to appreciate and to dedicate and to anticipate with the Lord. I want us to appreciate what God has done. I want us to dedicate ourselves to the one who gave himself for us in Jesus Christ. And I want us to anticipate what God can do that is beyond anything we can think or imagine. I want us to be spiritually healthy. And I believe giving has a lot to do with that. Because God says it has a lot to do with it. So if you give more to the church, cool. If you don't, I'm not going to know till the next week, so don't worry about it, all right? But I really do. I want us to be set free, to follow, to appreciate what He's done, to dedicate ourselves and to anticipate what God's going to do in the future. That's the goal. Let's, let's pray together. Take a minute just as we close here and maybe consider if God's spoken something to you. Maybe you're the person who is just so self-confident. 
and you can do it, and, and you don't need any help in life. And you're a very accomplished person, or you just proud, and you don't want to admit that you need any help, but you, you just, you can do it. And maybe right now you just say, Lord, I, I know it's a problem. Because God, I know it's keeping me from growing with you and trusting you. I really believe God may want to lead you into something that's going to require greater faith than you can have in self-confidence. What God has in store for you and ahead of you is going to require faith in Him and dedication to Him. So maybe this morning you just say, Lord, I repent of, of my unhealthy self-confidence. Lord, I just I, I need to trust you. Maybe, maybe your response this morning is literally, Lord, I'm going to make a plan to be a percentage giver, a spontaneous giver, a sacrificial giver. Lord, I'm going to give of my time, my talent, my treasure so that self-confidence isn't rooted in me but in you. I don't know how God wants you to respond, but I really do hope that you'll let the Holy Spirit speak to you this morning. Stir in your heart what He needs to do. Then you'll make a commitment to respond to Him accordingly. Lord, thank you this morning for exposing our self-confidence so that we can follow you more closely. We thank you, Lord, that everything that you do to to cut deep in our lives is meant simply to get us to trust and love you more. And in so doing, Lord, that's where we find true joy and peace. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the one who gave so that we would even know what giving looks like. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, this morning, make us givers who appreciate what you've done, who dedicate ourselves to you, and who anticipate what you're going to do in the future. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. We commit ourselves to you, and we look forward. We look forward to that resurrection. Jesus as the first fruits, and we as the harvest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close, please.